So I want to talk to you from John chapter 4. This marks six weeks of our journey through the book of John, and we're only in chapter 4. It's good stuff. It really is. You say, Mark, it's going to be forever. It's like a Genesis, 37 weeks all over again. Well, maybe not quite that much. We've mapped it out. It'll get us through May uh, of next year. But we, we want to we want to dive into this and really get all the good stuff that we find through the book of John. And so far through our journey, what we have experienced and we have discovered, we have discovered what really faulty faith looks like. We have. A few weeks ago when Nathan taught on the Sunday morning, he talked about Nicodemus. And we see that Christ begins to share his heart about the new birth. And so Nicodemus' response to that of being born again is, is this phrase, how can these things be? He's appalled at what Jesus is saying to him. And then last week we come across this Jew. And when they use the word Jew, it is a cultural definition for us and not a slang. Understand that. But we come across this Jew and he wants to have this debate concerning baptism about ceremonial purification. So he brings up somewhat of a conflict that he tries to create that between John the Baptist and Jesus. And he says to John the Baptist, hey, you're baptizing, you know, and that's great and that's wonderful. But look over there. There's Jesus baptizing and there's more in his line than there are your line. So is his way of purifying people actually better than yours? And so he creates that. And so what we find is faulty faith. And then we come to chapter four. And what we're going to find here is true faith. But the beauty of all of this in chapter four is that we find true faith in a very unlikely source because it's not a theologian like Nicodemus. And it's not a purebred and, you know, pure-blooded Jew like that we found last week in chapter three. But it's a Samaritan. It is a Samaritan. You say, Mark, what does that mean? We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But what I believe we take away from this narrative today is this, a couple of things. And the biggest thing is this, that there's no barrier. There's no barrier too great for God's grace and mercy and forgiveness in our life. And we take that away from this powerful thing that God is a barrier breaker of our life. Whether it's cultural barriers or whether it's religious barriers, there's nothing too great. And when we think about barriers... We think about things that are tangible sometimes, things that we can kind of wrap our hands around. But let me kind of do this as an example for you. For a moment, I just want you to black out the room, turn all the lights out. Nobody get up, nobody move around. We're going to turn all the lights out. That's very good. See, that, you say, Mark, that's no different than it usually is in here, right? Yes. And, and oh, by the way, our lights, we have a lighting problem. It's going to be repaired in the next few weeks, and we're actually going to have light in here. But just stay there for a moment. Don't move around. And when I think of this and and how darkness is a barrier in our life, and it truly is, you can't wrap your hand around it, you can't touch it, but it is truly a barrier. It's like spending a night in a hotel room. You know, and you get in a hotel room, you turn the air down low. Because why? Because you're really not, you don't feel like you're paying for the electricity, but you really are, right? And you turn the air down really low. You go over, you pull the three curtains that are usually over there, and then you get to the Mac Daddy of all curtains. It's the dark side of the moon curtain, right? Is exactly what it is. It's very thick. It's sort of like you feel like it's that thing that they lay on you when they take x-rays of you at the dentist is what it feels like. You pull that, and it's so dark in that room that you you can't see your hand in front of your face. You get in the bed, you snuggle up, and you go to sleep. And sometime in the middle of the night, you know, sometimes you have to get up in the middle of the night, whether it's for a drink or whether it's to, you know, get rid of drink. And so, right? And, and so you get up in the middle of the night, and it's pitch dark. And so what do you do? You feel your way down the end of the bed. You don't want to turn on the light and wake everybody else up. 
you know that there are booby traps all through the room just waiting for one of your toes to find those things in that room. And you work your way to the bathroom looking for that glimmer of light that comes under the door of, of the hall, that goes into the hallway. It's a barrier. And I think sometimes in life we try to describe them as something we can always put our hands around or we can always touch. But there are barriers in your life this morning like fear. And there are barriers in your life like worry. There's barriers in some of your life like depression or anxiety. There are things that you struggle with. There are sins in your life that, that simply take place and they're resident in your heart and your mind. And, and yet you've yet to act them out with your hands. And so there are barriers in our lives that we can't always put our hands around. What we find in this text this morning, that God, through, through his son Jesus, can eliminate all the barriers in our lives. There is none greater than him. So turn the lights back up, if you don't mind, please, and look around. Ah, there we are again. There you go. That's, that's very good. You got to squinch. If, well, it's bright for me, much brighter up here than it is for you. Absolutely, yes. And so what we, when we see this, that what we understand is the Bible many times teaches in extremes. And it teaches in extremes to give us hope in life. Because what we find in chapter 4 is that we find this morally deficient woman, and that's a barrier. In fact, even in this culture, being a woman was a barrier. And, and what we realize is that also that she is from Samaria. That's another barrier. We'll talk about that in a moment that we find here. That we find that she meets Jesus in the very hottest part of the day at the well, Jacob's well. Another barrier because time can be barriers in our lives. We find all of those, but what we realize is that grace and truth breaks down the barriers of our lives. So, Here's a couple of thoughts this morning. Four big thoughts for us to kind of focus on. The first is this. Jesus always shows up at the right time for the worst moments of our lives. And he does. And we thank God for that. That apart from Jesus, sacred spaces can become shame-filled spaces within our lives. The third is this. That religious practices and language make great hiding places from the truth. And we've all, well, if you've been in church long enough, then you've been there. And the fourth is this, an attempt to navigate life without Christ is as much a challenge as a four-year-old in calculus. You know, I, I, just, I just don't know how else to put that. You say, it doesn't take a four-year-old. It may be a 24, 34, 44, 54, 64. And, and when I say calculus, for some of you, your hand, the palms of your hands always get sweaty, right? It brings fear in your life, doesn't it? Because you remember those times, yes. So here's the narrative. It's such, a, it's such a great narrative. It says in John chapter 4, verse 1, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, there's the whole baptism kind of thing uh, again. Verse 2, Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. And I underline verse 4 because it's really important. It's very small but it's actually the hinge of all of this, I believe. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Jacob. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And you sometimes wonder, why does the Bible give us time of day? It's important because what we realize is details are describing in Scripture. So that's important what time it is, what time it is in that day. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. So here's the first thought. And I can't get past verse 4. 
Because it's the hinge pin of all of that. That Jesus had to pass through Samaria. He's not departing Judea to simply go to Galilee because he's afraid of the Pharisees. If you read this, you might think that. That he's somehow trying to avoid them for fear. No, it's that they are distracting to his purpose. One of the greatest works of the enemy in our life, one of the greatest tactics of the enemy in our life is that of a distraction from purpose. Because life can simply be a distraction to you and I. And so that's what he's doing. He's leaving them, not because he fears them, because they're a distraction. Because as we've established already, or John has in these first three chapters, he's established who Jesus is. That he is the incarnate Christ. Fully God, fully man. That no one touches Jesus without permission. Understand that. That he, his life wasn't taken. That he lays down his life freely for you and I. That he's the incarnate Christ. And he never shrinks in fear. So Jesus leaves Judea for Galilee because he is... He has a divine appointment. He has a divine appointment. Yes, because God's grace is purposeful in our life. It's not that, and and I tried to really think this through, how to say this to you. It's not that just God just randomly blankets creation with grace. It's not that, that somehow you and I are just random recipients of grace because that we are living beings in this world. But his grace is personal and his grace is purposeful within our lives. That God's grace is targeted. Understand that it's offered by divine appointment to you and I. It's very personal within our lives. And if anything that chapter 4 teaches us that, that his grace is personal within us. It's not that just, oh, we're just recipients because we are living, breathing beings. It's not that at all. But Jesus is not controlled by circumstances, and that's important. He's driven, out of, he's driven out of Judea to go to Galilee by his love for the Father, and he's being obedient to the Father, and there is purpose for his obedience. There is a target. There is an object. That's the brush that you and I have to paint this text with. There's something happening that's causing Jesus to make this trip. It is. It's an amazing snapshot of the heart of the Father through the Son. That God loves you and I so much that he sends Jesus. That, that is exactly what he's saying. Because when you look at this track, simply from that of Judea to Galilee, that it's not always the way that Jews would travel to go to Galilee. It's not. Now, it, it is a shortcut, yes. But Jews would always choose to take the long cut, is what they would always do. They would. And they would avoid Samaria. They would avoid Samaritans completely. And we're going to read that in the text in just a moment. Why? Because there's racial tension between them. And there's religious tension between the Jews and that of the Samaritans. They see those Samaritans as they are racially and ethnically mixed. And not only that, but so is some of their religious practices. So that is that the Samaritans, they don't go to Jerusalem to worship. And that's part of the conversation that we find between this woman and Jesus at the well of Jacob. But they worship in their own mountain. It's part of that discussion. Listen, I'm, I'm, um, ah. I'm 60 years old. I know I look good for 60. Don't I? Isn't that amazing? Yes. Yes. And uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Okay. I'm just joking. You didn't have to clap. I appreciate the sign up there. It says applause, you know, at those moments, right? Yes. But yet uh, I grew up in a time I was born in 1958. I remember the 60s. Okay. I don't know. How many of you in the room remember the 60s? Let me see your hand. 
<laughs> look at look at this room. Oh my gosh! Uh, gonna have to give an education. You know, all, what you remember about the '60s is music, maybe I suppose, right? So I remember the '60s, and and I remember this thing about racial tension. You say, Mark, we have that today. I realize that very different than than now, but yet still very much alive in our world because sin is still here and it's a broken world. I remember the very first time that I traveled with my parents to my grandparents' house in eastern North Carolina sometime during the 60s. And I remember us stopping at a rural gas station to get fuel for the car. And I said I had to go to the, to the restroom. And the restroom is out back, you know, behind. What, back in those days, if they weren't inside, you had to go out back. You had to go get the key from inside. The key was usually tied to a big two-by-four so you wouldn't take it in your pocket, right? Yes, yes. And so you did that and I went back. And I remember for the very first time, for the very first time, I, I experienced... The, the stench and the ugliness of racism in, in my life. Because, listen, my dad was in the military for 27 years. I always lived in a military base, and, 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 our, and our neighborhood was like a, a, a potpourri of colors. I mean, it was really amazing to live in that environment. And on my way to the restroom that day, I happened to walk by two water fountains. And I remember it. it it's some one of those things kind of burn in my mind. And one of those water fountains, there's a sign over it that says, Whites Only. And the other water fountain said colored. Do you see how when we talk about this subject, how quiet it gets? Do you see that? It's, there's no words to describe what I felt in my heart that day because I was never raised that way. And, and so I didn't understand it and I had to get clarification as to why that there was two water fountains determined by the color of your skin in life. And, and so... I say that to you this morning to say that's the culture that we find here in John chapter 4. It's very much that culture. It's very much how the Jews would see that of the Samaritans and even how the Samaritans would also see the Jews. And so can I give you a caveat for a moment because I can't miss this opportunity to say to you that I don't care how you paint prejudice in your life this morning, whether you paint it with a cultural brush in your life, or whether you paint it somehow with this environmental, influential brush within your life. I don't care if you ever say to me, well, it's just the way I was raised. Understand this about what the Scriptures teaches us about prejudice, and that is that it reeks with the stench of sin. It is absolutely sin in our lives. Understand that. And if it's not left, or if it's left unsurrendered to Christ in your life, it will destroy your life. It will destroy your relationships. You can't hate your brother and love Jesus at the same time. It doesn't work. It does not work. Whether it's ethnicity, it doesn't work. Whether it's gender, and somehow you think that God would love one gender above the other, or one would be more intelligent and the other, then that is absolutely not true. But I have understood that my wife is much smarter than I, and she makes my dumb self look really good a lot of times in life. I do understand that. But it's not about gender and understand that. And it's even not about faith. Even though I truly believe that, and I, and I stand upon this, and I would die on this fact, and I believe this is what the Scripture 
scripture teaches that we serve the one and true God. Absolutely. But that does not mean that I can hate my Muslim brother. It does not mean that at all. Understand that because we are all fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. Whether we are black or white or or, or somewhere in between or whether we are male or female or whether we are Christians or whether we are Muslims or whether we are Buddhists or whether we are Hindus. God loves us all and we are all God's children. And And I say that to you this morning because that is the brush that you have to paint this this moment, this culture in. You have to realize that. And so when this text in verse 4, it says that Jesus had to go to Samaria, that realize this, that this is God sending him into a place of great risk. Understand that, that the Jews viewed this, this moment of him walking into Samaria with great disdain, but he's going to be obedient to the voice of the Father. Why? Because you and I are the point of that obedience, because he steps into the ugliness of our lives. He steps in the very ugly parts of our lives. There are no barriers to Christ. Understand that. He will not shy away from the challenges of my life or your life or the barriers in any of our lives to reveal that the Father loves us through Him, the Son. And it says this very plainly, as we're going to read in a moment, the Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans, but that never stops Jesus. It doesn't. No. Because being obedient to God understand this, will take us through the hard places in life sometimes. It's not always the easiest thing. It will take us to Jacob's well in the very hottest part of the day. And it will, it will have us there to reach out to someone that's very different than who we are, that even their faith is very controversial as we see it. But God places us in that situation. Why? Because there's no barriers too great for God. No barriers too great for him. And when I read this and that word had to go, then what I realized is this. This says something about the heart of the father through the son to you and I, that this is God's will. This is God's heart that the father sends Jesus. It's the heart of a sovereign and a providential God. He's focused on this Samaritan woman that day at the well at Jacob's well and realize this. And I say this, the devil is absolutely a liar this morning. If he tells you that your environment, your background, your track record, what side of town you were born in your religion is a barrier to Christ. There are no barriers to our God this morning. There are no barriers to him. And it's the will of the father to break down the barriers of our lives. It is the will of God to do that. Oh, you got, I got to read. I'm, I'm getting excited. And that means, you know, that I'm taking a lot of time where I maybe shouldn't be. But I got to keep moving. Verse seven. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Paint this setting with the brush that we just gave you for a moment. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink for me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samarians. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying this to you, give me a drink, you would have asked me, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw your water with. I underlined that, for the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? You know, Jesus 
Jesus must have left his Yeti in the backpack with his disciples when they go on to another town to try to find food so he doesn't have a cup. He doesn't have a solo cup. He has nothing with him. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Listen, here's the thing about Jacob's well, and and you need to understand this, that it's more than just a place to hydrate. It's more than that. It's a sacred space in the life of Samaritans because it represents God's covenant with them through their patriarch, Jacob. So she's there in the hot of the day. Why is she there at that time of the day? One, we've always heard this if you have been in church at all. And if you haven't, then maybe this is information for you that you need to hear. We've always heard that she goes there. Why? To avoid the women of the city because they look at her because she's a sinful woman. And and we'll understand all of that in a moment. But yet, I think even more than that, I believe it's a very it's a very uh, guilt ridden place for her because not only are sacred places you know places that we can find God, but I think they're also shame filled spaces in our life apart from Christ. Because when she goes there every day, she realizes that she doesn't meet the standard of her own religious heritage. She's a failure even in that area. This is what happens to us when we attempt to approach God without Jesus. That's exactly what happens. That we're never going to measure up. We never arrive to where we need to be. We arrive in shame. We leave in shame apart from Christ. What's different about this day than any other day that she goes to the well at noontime? The difference is this, that Jesus is waiting at the well. That's the difference. And that makes all the difference. Because this shame-filled space for her is about to become a very grace-filled space for her. Keep on reading verse 13. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me the water. Look, because you can tell this is a place of shame for her. So that I'm so that I will not be thirsty and have to come here to draw. I don't want to come back here to draw water anymore, she simply says. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So here's the second thought this morning. Jesus relentlessly pursues us regardless of the barriers of our lives. Because there's nothing about the life of this woman that you and I really would ever want to emulate. Nothing. This is not the woman that you go to for marital counseling about relationships. It's not her. I understand that, right? That she's, she's broken and she is damaged in life. That she deals with shame and embarrassment every day of her life. That, you know, she asks that question, I think, when she looks at herself every day, she would simply say, how can my life turn out this way? How could I, how did I get here? She's withdrawn from society. She tries to be invisible in her own community. Every stare is like a dagger to her very heart. It is. Yes. She's used in her community as an object lesson to all the children. This is not the kind of person you want to grow up to be. She's not. And he's used, and she's used by her cohabitant, the man that she lives with, for sexual services in exchange for shelter and a place to sleep. She's seen as being outside of the grace of God. And the idea of Jesus offering this woman living water 
Her response to that, sir, she says, you don't even have a bucket or a cup to draw from. And you think, well, he's God. He doesn't need one of those, right? He can do like Stretch Armstrong. You remember Stretch Armstrong? He can stretch his arm out down the whale, right? Get, get, a, get a, a, a scoop of water, and, and he's God. But don't over-etherealize this. Understand this. And, and this hit me so hard in, in looking at this text as I've looked at it over the years is this. Jesus' intent, Jesus' intent was always to drink from her water jar, even though she was a Samaritan. Well, you can't do that. He's a Jew. Yes. Samaritans have like, I mean, they, they have like cooties, right? You know what cooties are? Do you know that? Did you know that's a real word? How do you know that, Mark? I Googled it. Yes, I did, right? Yes. It's a real word. It's a word that comes from World War I, and it simply has to do with body lice. There you go. That's your information for the day, okay? Thank you very much, and you're welcome for that. Absolutely, yes. But it's like, that's, no. Listen, there's no barrier too great for Christ. Understand that. His grace and love in her life is so overwhelming. She's so astounded by what he's saying to her. That she can only go to something physical. And she says, hey, you know, what are you going to drink out of? You don't even have a cup. No, don't kid yourself about this scene. Understand this. It's the hottest part of the day. He's been traveling all morning to get to Samaria. Jesus is going to drink. And he doesn't do stretch Armstrong down into the well with his arm. He doesn't. That he drinks from her water jar. Understand that. Realize that he crosses that barrier. He breaks down that wall. He goes across the line. There is no limit. There is no limit to his grace. He will be aggressive enough to tear down the walls of your life, to simply coat your life in his grace and his love and forgiveness. Nothing keeps him from doing that. No. There are no barriers. Nothing too risky. He drinks from her water jar. That that amazes me. Take a little survey this morning for a moment of brevity. You know, how many of you absolutely refuse to drink after other people? Let me see your hand. And those of you in the room, you refuse to drink out of... Okay, all right, put your hands down. How many really doesn't matter? You drink out of someone else. Anybody else? Oh, good, interesting. That's, that's interesting, yes. Uh, that's very interesting. You say, well, it only depends on who I'm going to drink after, right? I like family. Well, immediate family, yes. You kind of break it down a little more. Not my weird uncle, you know, kind of thing, because I don't know what's going on with his mouth, so you have no idea, right? And, and that's not going to happen, right? And you don't drink after little kids. Why? Because there's always backwash in that stuff. Exactly right. Isn't that right? Yeah, yeah. And you see that apple juice. It's so laden with backwash, you could actually eat it with a fork kind of deal, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm not drinking that mess. <laughs> right that's right and, and it's kind of gross isn't it absolutely yeah well i drink after my wife or my husband somebody say i wouldn't even drink after my wife or my husband much less my kids you know and, and but here's the point he takes the risk do you realize that he takes the risk to show up that day without even a cup to drink from Because he knows as being God that there is a woman in that city who was broken and beaten down and battered 
who is a victim of society and her own poor decisions, that he knows that she will sheepishly and as invisible as she can approach that well in the hottest part of the day because no one is there, yet she deals with the shame of what the well even means and reminds her of her forefathers and her patriarch Jacob, that he is, she is going to be there. And he purposely shows up with nothing to drink from because he's going to cross one of the greatest barriers, and that is that he's going to drink from a Samaritan's cup. And you sit here week in and week out, and you think that God can't reach you, and that your sin is so deplorable that would even actually make God nauseous as if he didn't already know. That your track record somehow is a barrier in your life that will keep you from ever becoming the person that God has designed you to be. That you will never love again because your heart has been broken so greatly that you will never risk your heart with anyone else because somebody walked away from you or abandoned you. You will never, you, you will never feel, you will never feel like you can have a a healthy relationship again in your life because of your own sin, because of your own mistakes and your own bad decisions. And can I tell you something today? The devil is a liar. He's the father of all lies. He always has been. He always will be. Why? Because we serve a God today who is even willing to drink from a cup of the Samaritan to know that he is their God and he loves them and he covers their life with grace and forgiveness. What makes that day different about this woman? Jesus being there. That he is there. He is there for her. But he vets her, doesn't he? he, he he's just boom, right out all the things. Hey, you've had five husbands. The one you're living with right now is not even your own husband. And I know your heart. Why does he do that? Because to expose our deepest hurt is to reveal our greatest need. And our greatest need in life is not better theology. And our greatest need in life is not a change in the geography of our life. Because she even says, hey, give me water so I don't have to come here again. It's not that the greatest need in your life is maybe not to find another church. And you say, oh, I've already been to that church because so I had to find another one. And, and it's not another relationship to fix you. My goodness, here, she's the poster person for that failure because she's had six and that's not fixed her. Our greatest need in life is Christ. And so how does she respond? She responds like you and I respond to Jesus so many times. She tries to change the subject. You know, that's sort of the tactic, right? If you read all the next verses, all the way 20 through 24, you read them, you see they have this discussion about where you worship and where you shouldn't worship. And she brings it up. It's her discussion. She says, our fathers worship. And she brings all of this up. But, I'm, I, but for time, I read verse 25. And the woman said to him, she says to him, I know that Messiah is coming. She gets to say he's the Messiah. I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. So what barriers are you hiding behind in your life this morning is the question for you and I. And and I think, you know, you have to name your poison. She no longer can hide behind relationships because God has outed her in that area already. So, So what does she do? She plays the religious card is exactly what she does. She wants to have a religious discussion. Some of the best places for you and I to hide in life is behind our religious practices and the language that we use in life. It is the best place 
place for us to hide at times. Oh, I believe this is God's will for my life. I hear people say that all the time. Regardless of whether it lines up with Scripture or not, it just makes me happy. You can't do God's will your way. You cannot do God's will your way. No. It's the story of Abraham and Sarah, isn't it? Yeah. God promises them a child. Abraham's 100 and Sarah is 90, you know, kind of deal. And, and so there is hope for some of you in this room and some of you now rebuking that statement, right? Absolutely not. Yes. And so God doesn't come in their time frame. So what does what happens? See, they take things into our own hands and they call it the will of God is exactly what they want to do. Sarah says, hey, Abraham, here's Hagar. Here's my handmaiden, Hagar. Here's my husband, Abraham. Now y'all go make a baby is exactly what happens, right? Yes, it's weird. I know it's very strange. And now that unity becomes Ishmael. And then Abraham holds up Ishmael to God and say, God, your will, this is your will. And God says, ah, dude, that's not my will. That's your thing, not my thing. Understand that. It never works to hide behind our religious stuff. It doesn't. So where are you hiding? What barrier in your life do you hide behind this morning? Verse 26 says, Jesus says to her, because she brings up the subject of the Messiah. He says to her, I who speak to you am he. Oh, he shows up in flesh. Listen. It, it's she's the person that if Jesus walks into Starbucks and, and he and he gets, you know, whatever drink he, he, that he chooses, that uh, he he goes and he sits down and he has a conversation with this woman. This is what he does. It's Christ's will to reveal himself as the Messiah to a woman with five husbands who is currently paying rent with her own body. And it's mind boggling that he would do that. Because there's no barriers with Christ. Never think too highly of grace. Never think too highly of grace. That Jesus is ruthless with her heart. There's nothing gentle about Jesus' approach. Why? Because he's pressing into her broken life. Tell me where there's living water so I cannot come back here again, she says. But it's not about places and it's not about cities or mountains or directions in which you worship. No, no, no. It's not that you make it right, but Jesus says, it's I have come to make it right. And I finish with this, because if I don't, I leave you hanging. And it's verse 27. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, you know, well, they know better, you know. No one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar, I have this picture as she left. She must have left. Her heart has been laid bare before Jesus. She's probably been crying. It's not just a whimper. It's an ugly cry. You know what an ugly cry is, right? Yes, it's an ugly cry. An ugly cry involves snot and tears, and you can't catch your breath, right? Right? Isn't that right? Yes. And so I, I just... Vi- this vision that of that's the kind of cry she's been outed. Everything's been hidden is now out before the Lord. But what does she do? Here's what she does. And she went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I've ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. The last thing I, I talked to you about this morning before we pray is this, that shattered barriers translate into no barriers. Because she tells her story to the same people that would turn their heads when she walked down the street. She tells her story that day to the same people that would use her 
as an object lesson in a, a moment of teaching where their children and said, this is the kind of individual that you don't want to ever grow up to be. She tells her story to those very same people and they listen. Why? Because when Jesus shows up, barriers begin to fall within their lives. Understand that in our lives also, that these were human barriers to her in life that they represented fear and they represented shame and confusion and failure and bad choices. But now they're hearing her story. And not only do they hear her story, but they respond. When Jesus shows up, barriers are shattered. So there's two questions this morning that I leave you with. So what does God want me to do? What does God want me to do with all of this? Or what does God want me to know? And what God wants me to know is that he's sitting at my Jacob's well. He's there. And that makes all the difference. Because he meets you and I in our place of shame and struggle and fear. He meets us in the dark of the night when We feel most alone. But I think what what speaks to me most powerfully about this text is that he, he doesn't hesitate to drink from my cup. Because this is personal. This is from his heart to his child. Because his hands are dirty within my life. What does God want me to know that he's sitting at my well? What does God want me to do? God wants me to come out of hiding. He's here to shatter the barriers of your life. Those things that have denied you freedom. Can I tell you something about freedom in Christ? Freedom in Christ is not the absence of responsibility. But freedom in Christ is simply living out those responsibilities in your life through the power of Christ. That you know that he's the source of your life and you are not. And so you trust him. He's providential, so it's not by chance that we're here today. And it's not by chance that you're here today for chapter 4 of the book of John. No, no. Can I tell you? The Holy Spirit set you up. Isn't that great? He brought you here for this moment. For you to know that he's sitting at your well. For what he wants you to do. And that is simply he wants you to come out of those things that you're hiding behind. He breaks down those barriers of your life. And he brings real freedom to you and I today. So for a moment, would you bow your heads in reflection to what we've talked about today? Father, your word speaks powerfully to us like nothing else in life. That we are reminded today that you show up in the toughest times of our life, that you are present in those moments when we might think that you would run the other way, that you're there. 
Father, that you've come with grace and mercy, but yet, Lord, that you are persistent in your pursuit of us today. Whether we are Christian or non-Christian, whether we are following you or whether we are still skeptical of whether we want to follow you, you're pursuing all of us in this room equally. That, Lord, you're not pursuing that of us having a greater, just a greater knowledge of you or more information about you, but today you're pursuing our hearts. You reveal the greatest need of our life to simply reveal truly what we need, and that is you. So for a moment, God, we open our hearts and our lives. You're at our well. God, we pray for the breaking down and the destruction of those things within our life that we hide behind. God, we don't deny them as this woman of Samaria. But God, we own those things. But we say today that they don't own us, that you own us, Father, that we are yours and we trust you. So Holy Spirit, do a work in all of our lives this morning as we surrender these places to you.